you'll turn in your Bibles with me, we're going to read Matthew 24, verse 45 through 25, verse 30. These are all connected here. We are in the midst of Jesus' private seminar on what will happen at the end of the world. What would it look like when Jesus returns? And we've learned three things. One, we live in a time of tribulation and hardship. And so when everyone else is saying, oh, this is terrible, we can say Jesus told it was going to be this way. Earthquakes, famine, betrayal, immorality, unbelief, so we don't panic. The second thing we've learned is that Jesus could come at any time. Everything that needs to happen before Jesus comes back has already happened. And so we're waiting And that's really where we're at now, is what do we do while we watch and wait for the coming morning? How how do we wait like the night watchman, (laughs) longing for morning? And so we have three parables on how to do that. So let's read them together. This is Matthew 24. This is God's word. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. 
Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward. Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy, and even this is given to us in love. Let's pray together. Our Father in God, I pray you would show us, um, show us our conquering King, show us Jesus, our Emmanuel, who even with warnings is, is showing us that he loves us. And so I pray, Lord, you would take away our fear this morning of judgment and use our love for you to motivate faithful service, joyful service uh, of our King, that we might love and serve him well in this world and enter into the joy of our master. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that nobody likes waiting, right? There's probably nobody in here who has ever, um, never not yelled at the person in front of them at the moment the light turns green. Go! (laughs) Or we just don't like waiting. And yet, really, waiting is the story of our lives. We're always hurrying up to wait. You can't wait to grow up. You can't wait to drive. We can't wait till these rules my parents, these chains my parents have put on me, they come off. Uh, We can't wait to date, to get married. We can't wait to get a job, the job we enjoy. We can't wait for a job not to stink. Uh, We can't wait to retire. We can't wait for our boss to retire. There's all kinds of things we're always waiting for because waiting really is the life that we live. We're always waiting. We're always looking forward. And that's what all of our parables are about is we need to learn to wait and to wait well, knowing what the end is and to to live well in the middle of our waiting. Because the goal we heard multiple times was to enter into the joy of our master is to experience God's joy, to experience God's delight, um, to, this is where we're headed and what we have already, the joy of our God. And he says, while you wait, I want you to joyfully invest in Christ's kingdom. And so this morning what we're going to do, right, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man, the main reason we are here is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever as we want to make God known while we joyfully work for Christ and His kingdom. And that's what we're called to do while we wait. 
And of course, the elephant in the room is that Jesus is going to come back. And this is what last judgment is about. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. He's going to ask us individually, how have you joyfully invested what I have given you? And so that's what we want to talk about this morning, the, the joy, that we're called to work joyfully, we're called to work faithfully. What does that look like? How do we wait? What do we do while we wait? And what I want to do is we're going to start with the middle parable because it's a good picture of joy. And I think we can tie the first and third ones together because they're both master and servant things. So let's, what do we do while we wait? And I think, one, we need to be ready. He's going to surprise us, but it's also we're called to wait joyfully. Right, so 25.1, Jesus describes his second coming, his return, like we are called to, to wait, wait for the joyful arrival of the groom. It's a great joy that we're waiting for when we wait for Jesus to return. And right here, right now, what we're called to do while we wait for him to come back is to rejoice just to being included. That's, that's the picture. You have 10 virgins who have been included in the, the, the bridegroom's wedding plans. And so I think one of the, the, the things we can pull out of this parable is we're called to work faithfully for Jesus with a wedding day joy, just, just a surprise that he would include us. Right? And so you look at this, you have 10 virgins, these young, they're young women, probably 13 or 14, probably friends of the bride, and their job is to just wait for the bridegroom to show up and then escort the bridegroom to the bride's house and then they would walk a giant parade with the bride and groom joyfully to their home. I mean, they get to share in the joy of their master, so to speak. They are part of this community parade because they got married in public. It was a, it was a community affair and it's at night, right? Because they feasted all day long and now this, this the end of the, the marriage is happening. And so what these virgins are expecting to do is lead a, a torch-lit parade with the community, with the bridegroom, to pick up the bride. This is a massive party. It's meant to be filled with joy. And so these ten virgins have a great honor. Right? They're right there at the front. They're right there in the forefront. They get to enjoy being, celebrating with their friend. And five of them are foolish and five of them are wise. Some bring extra oil, expecting things to, to take a long time. Some do not. And it, the issue isn't really that they fall asleep. It's just that you have some who are prepared for the delay and some who are not. We don't know why the bridegroom is delayed. Maybe they're still arguing and hashing out the bride price. We don't really know. It doesn't say. But the point is, is that by the time the bridegroom shows up, only five of them were prepared. And the five fools, the five foolish young ladies have the door shut in their faith, shut in their face because they weren't ready. And this is, this is a surprise ending, right? Because just think about any wedding you would go to. If you're invited, you, you have an, an entrance, right? You can get in. And so Jesus is trying to shock us. He's writing to disciples, trying to weed out those who know him and those who do not. This is a surprise ending. But it ends with Jesus, it's the haunting groom, saying to those who were invited, who knew this was coming, it's all of us, saying, I didn't know you, I don't know you. And the door is shut in their face. 
And so what's the point? And here, here's what I hope you get from the first, the first parable here, what Jesus is talking about. It's a warning to invest your resources, your time, your energy to joyfully wait for Jesus' return. But the wise, what the only difference between the wise and the fools is the wise know this is going to take a while, and they're aware that the joy will fade while they wait. They're tired. And so they plan for it. Fools don't plan ahead. Their joy fades. They fall asleep. They don't expect trouble. They don't expect delay. They just, they're just saying, you know, I'm happy to be included, and they don't think ahead. And so they get distracted. And so here's the, first, the first, very first point I want us to get from the parable of the ten versions is be ready. Jesus is coming. He's going to surprise you. And we're called to, to joyfully be ready and to plan ahead to wait. It's pretty simple, right? Jesus is coming. We don't know when. We have to wait. But we have the privilege of being included. Rejoice in it. So what do you do now while you wait? And how do you maintain this joy? And so this is the, go back to the first parable in Matthew 24, 45. Um, you're called to work, work wisely. Work knowing who your master is. Joyfully work for Christ's kingdom. Glorify God by enjoying him and his work. And so if you look at this, in verse 45, the master Jesus, he leaves, he goes off on a business trip. I mean, and this was a world without cell phones. They didn't text. He couldn't FaceTime. He wasn't going to check up on them, which is great. It would be a nice, <laughs> if you could actually leave. All right, this is the old world. And so he leaves the household. He can't call them. He says, all right, servants, you're in charge of everything that is mine. The whole household, it's yours. And so the wise and faithful servant, while he waits, he works hard to be faithful. He does what he's called and commanded to do. And it ends with him being praised and rewarded. The wise servant lives by faith in the return of the master. And then the foolish, wicked servant basically gets bored waiting. It's really like he just must have thought the master died and isn't coming back. And he doesn't expect judgment, so it makes him cruel and mean and violent and abusive and immoral. And he lives like there is no end and the end doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden the master shows up to his great surprise and you have the horrific ending that he was cut into bits and thrown into outer darkness, into judgment. It's brutal. And so here's what Jesus is getting us to think about. He says, I'm the master of this world, and when I leave, I've left the world in the hands of my faithful servants, my disciples. God is always delegating his authority to care for his world. It's no different in Christ's kingdom. He does that with us as Christians. And it's getting you and I to, re to really wrestle with this, this whole idea of last judgment, that you have a divine appointment, an ultimate job review, so to speak, where God himself is going to hold you accountable and me accountable for how we've lived our lives waiting for Christ to return. And it's just asking you, why are you here on this world? What is the ultimate reason behind you getting out of bed in the morning? Do you have a reason to get out of bed in the morning? Uh, do you have an ultimate purpose behind your work other than you, other than your own happiness, other than just survival? Right. Why are you here? Why do you come to church? What are you hoping to accomplish? What are your goals in life? That's what this parable is about. 
And there's two commissions in the Bible. You have the great commission that we're familiar with. And, and in general, just as human beings, we have the first commission from Genesis, which tells us that we were not here at all to live for our own happiness. All right, Genesis 1.28. This is just the background. You'll see the pattern here. God blessed. He made man, male and female in his own image, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then it says in Genesis 2, God put them in the garden to work. So be blessed by God. This is why you're here. You're here to be blessed by God, your creator. And to work for him. To work within and enjoying the delight of your master. So be blessed, care for the, your, the, the part of the world that God has put you in. And that's really, a, it, that's the pattern. It's the same pattern here in, the, in, the, in the, the parable is look at how blessed you are that God, the master, would entrust you, somebody like you, you know you more than I know you, and he gives you responsibility. We're singing it with the kids. What is the son of man that you pay any attention to us. Psalm 8 continues, You made us a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings. You've crowned us with glory and honor. You've given us dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And so the big idea is, is we're called to work joyfully for this God, be blessed by this God, and in every aspect of our lives, see that we are working for our master. We are his servants. And you get in this parable, Jesus takes these big ideas, be blessed by Jesus, and work for him. Be faithful to do what he has called you to do. Because one day he will return and hold you accountable. Now, this is helpful to start out this way. This actually is good news, even though it, there is the haunting, looming bad news in the passage, because if you know that, that we live in God's world and we have a master and we are servants, what it does is give you purpose. Right? There are surpri surprising good news applications here. Judgment Day is good news for your work and your service and your faithfulness in Christ's kingdom. Because it's saying you have a purpose. Your work matters, that we live in God's world and everything you do from Monday through Saturday and even Sunday has immense significance. From what you do when you get out of bed in the morning to when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, it's rippling with eternal significance. And what it's doing is pushing you to live well for the glory, the joy, the delight, the acceptance of your God and King. Because every thought, word, and deed is being recorded. Just picture your life where you have an invisible tape recorder just recording everything you say. The master will return. He knows. He's watching. And this is, the, this is what we have to do. If you, don't have, if you get rid of Judgment Day, you lose any kind of meaning to just the mundane, every day, I have to go to work Monday through Friday. 
So here's, here's what one professor at Columbia says about human life in general, just to get your, your imagination, your, your mind going. Right? Just in order to live, you have to have some purpose that, gets rid of, that just gets bigger than our everyday life. Because we, what we're trying to escape is this lurking fear, this suspicion that everything we do and spend is just keeping ourselves busy while we wait to die. We need Judgment Day. Because what he's saying is, most of us just live and work and go about our day trying to fight for our own happiness or fight for our own survival without thinking about any kind of ultimate purpose. And we, as human beings, we are designed for purpose. Right, so Judgment Day is good news. God is going to hold us accountable. Absolutely, it's terrifying. But you can't get rid of it. You can't run from it. He's coming. And it helps give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Because if you get rid of the ultimate job review at the end of all things, your work is ultimately about your fulfillment. It's ultimately about your happiness or just being busy to entertain yourself while you die. And for those of us who have had a lot more benefits and privileges, you know, those of us who are more educated, who are more white-collar, what's tempting for us when it comes to our work is just to pour out all of our time and all of our energy and all of our focus to, to climb the ladder, um, to live for our work, because it's all about us and what we can do. I want to do something. I want to leave a mark on this world, which easily leads to 70-hour weeks, workaholism, and sucks the joy out of everything we do. And those of us who, um, who are, well, not all of us have the same privileges who don't have the college degrees and opportunities, work feels like a daily humiliation if there's no purpose behind it. I mean, just imagine you have no money, and you're called, and you say, I want to do what I want, and then you're, you have all this pressure right now to make your life worth living, and you never have a chance to get out from the bottom. And you have a dead-end job. You're just screwing on bottle tops in a factory. Where's your hope? Where's your... Your joy. How do you joyfully go about doing mundane, menial work? Right. See, if you get rid of Judgment Day, work is either about our own personal happiness or surviving. It's either about our happiness or our humiliation. And this is what one person talks about being poor. He says, one of the most difficult aspects of growing up was not the lack of money, but just being ashamed of not having the opportunity to move up. That shame would turn to anger, and I think a lot of the drug use and alcohol we experienced was just a way to numb the shame. It's, a very, it's the very picture of this wicked servant, of somebody who has no hope, who has no reason, who doesn't think the end is coming, and he's just mad. And so when Jesus tells this parable, and, and the parable of the talents we're going to look at in a moment, Right? You, you look, just look at the description of the faithful servant as he goes about his, his lifetime while he waits for the master return. What is his job description? He's in food service. His job every day is to make sure there's food on the table and to wait for the master to return. That's it. Monday, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Tuesday, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Every day, eat, sleep, repeat. He's in food service. And how many of you look at food service jobs as something being done 
as an opportunity to joyfully serve your God and King. I worked at McDonald's. It doesn't feel that glorious. (laughs) And yet here we have Jesus just living life in this world saying, even the most mundane jobs can be glorious in God's eyes if you understand who you are working for. Work well even in this. So just bare minimum, being a human and working in God's world, one of the ways you wait for Jesus to come back is just to be a good employee, show up on time, uh, work hard, do it not for the, the, the joy of the paycheck, but for the joy of your God and King. And this is telling us there is no menial or mundane work in God's world. There's dirty jobs, there's jobs that are hard work. When it's all done for the right master, it's going to be toil. But there's purpose behind it. There's hope at the end. You're being seen. It's being watched. That's why Paul could say to slaves in Ephesians 6, Obey your masters with fear and trembling, not to please your boss, but as servants of Christ. Uh, rendering service with a good will is to the Lord, not to man. And then he goes on to tell the, the, the bosses to treat their employees well. Right. And so here's what I want to just stretch your brain as you think about it. We in the church, we think about being ready for Christ's return. We want to be caught doing something spiritual. I hope I'm up at 4 a.m. praying or I'm t- preaching the gospel to some poor stranger on the street. And what Jesus is saying, just be faithful in the little things. That's how you... Get ready for Christ to return. Go to work. Remember who you work for when you get up tomorrow. This is a powerful motivation. That's why we talk about the Protestant work ethic. To get out of bed and work well in whatever job you find yourself in. That whatever job you find yourself in is actually a calling from God to bloom where you are planted. Even parenting. I love this quote from Luther where he says, When a father washes diapers or does some other uh, menial task for his children. And someone else just makes fun of the dad for having uh, diapers on his hands. The angels and God God their father smiling. Because when he does so, in faith, he's doing so as God's son. And it's a beautiful thing. There are no mundane tasks in God's kingdom. Now, Let me ask you that question. Who are you working for? Are you able to do this? And I know this is is the second part of the parable because some of us would say, okay, I'm supposed to work and go to my job and work faithfully without complaining, joyfully for God, my God and King, for Jesus. And you're going to say, well, you don't know my boss or the toxic work environment. And even here, you have a wicked servant who is clearly not somebody you want to work with. Judgment Day is good news for the abused. You don't want to get rid of it. Because the promise here is that when the master returns, he's going to punish the cruel and the wicked, the violent, uh, the the drunk, all those who abused grace. Jesus is talking to people who claim to be Christians here. And you can apply it bigger in a bigger picture, but historically, you know what this the church has applied this? It's applied it to church leaders. Pastors and priests, which screams really loudly and and with all these reports coming from Catholic and Protestant churches. 
So when the master returns, he's going to hold all of his servants accountable, but especially those in leadership, for, for those who abused grace. But it applies to all of us, right? Because one of the things we talk about at Hope, and I, I wanna, we're always going to talk about, I hope, by God's grace, is that you are saved through faith, through faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. They, that when you put your faith in Christ, you are set free from all condemnation in Christ. And then we are asked, if, if God forgives everything, why do I have to be good? <laughs> One of the answers Jesus gives to Christians is judgment day. You've been graced. I'm coming back. What are you doing with my grace? Right. Because the second coming, what Jesus tells us, is going to hold abusers of grace accountable. Because you have this wicked servant who is beating those next to him and under him. He was cruel. He's immoral. He's eating and drinking with drunkards. In the ancient world, the way you just described an immoral person was somebody who was violent and drunk. One of the, the famous examples was Nero. He would drink with his buddies, the emperor, and then he would take his soldiers and they would just go beat people to death for fun. See, the promise of the second of the last judgment is Jesus will right those wrongs. He will hold them accountable. That's why it's such a brutal ending. Because it's, when people live brutal lives, they will receive justice. Right? And so let me say it this way. This is comfort. This is, this is giving you courage and strength, even if you have a bad boss, to persevere, to hold your head up, because you don't work for them, you work for Christ. And it gives you the courage to work for a lazy boss, a bad boss, a cruel boss, because you work for a crucified king, the boss who first served you. And this really, well, let me, let me encourage you. This is how our, our Christian brothers and sisters in the history of the church have survived much more difficult circumstances than we have. Because the seed of Jesus' teaching here about second coming, and, and working faithfully despite your circumstances. That's why you still have an African-American church, frankly. The seed of Jesus' teacher, teaching here broke the, the slave trade in our country. Here's some of the songs the Christian African slaves here in the U.S. would sing. Here's one of the words. Mary, don't you weep. Don't you weep. Pharaoh's army got drowned. They would just sing that over and over and over again. Don't cry. Pharaoh's army got drowned. And this is really subtle because, right, they're, they're, they're being listened to by their, their, their masters, their bosses. Who, was, who were the, the pharaohs in their lives? It was their cruel and wicked employers, those who were claiming to be Christian. And what they were doing is every day they would go to work, and they would gather together once a week to sing of, of that day when the master would return and hold the wicked accountable. See, friends, we need Judgment Day to not only give our work meaning and purpose, but we also need it to deal with injustice and to, to work for those who are unjust, to survive. Now, what do you do? What kind of work in particular is Jesus calling you to do? And this is how we're going to end. This is the last parable. 
We're called to to work joyfully for this God and King. We're called to wait for a judgment day and to work well in the meantime. And the, the parable of the talents calls us to joyfully invest in Christ's kingdom while you wait. So you look at 25:14. It's the famous parable of the talents. You can start by asking, what in the world is a talent? Because in English, it's confusing, right? Our talents are just our natural abilities and gifts, and that's not what Jesus had in mind. A talent in the ancient Greek world was the rough equivalent of 20 years' worth of wages. Just, just picture that. I'll do the math for you since you're on, it's the weekend. It's a day of rest. Based on the average salary in Saratoga County, I'll even go on the lower end, $35,000 a year. So when that guy was given five talents, he was given the equivalent of $700,000 to invest by by his master. This is what it's telling you about Jesus. Look at how generous he is with what he has given you. All right, so you, you have the master who's loaded, who's generous, who delegates his authority, he gives five talents, which is what, $3.5 million to the, to the guy with five? The, the guy who has two talents has $1.4 million, and, and the guy with one talent, oh, no, he only has $700,000. Right, don't feel bad for him. So just think about it. This is the, the, the image for living the Christian life. Look at how generous God has been given. How generous God has been given. Yeah, try that again. How generous he's been with you. <laughs> I mean, look at how much he's trusted you. And what do the talents represent? I mean, they, they represent more than our gifts and abilities. It's more than your spiritual gifts, right? You're working for Jesus here. What they are, are the particular works that Jesus has prepared for you, the works of your master. And what is his work? Well, in Matthew... It's this, make disciples of all nations. Uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded and know that he is with you. And so the talents, right, here's your general commission in life, make disciples. You are, you are included in that whether you have one talent or five. That's the job description. Make the grace of Christ known across the street and around the world, among your friends, among your family, among your coworkers. And what, what this does is that it, the talent you have been given, it includes all that you are, your God-given abilities, your personality, your relationships, your finances. Uh, your, it does include your spiritual gifts, your Holy Spirit-given talents and abilities. It says you are given these talents each one according to his ability, and we all have different roles to play. And so if I could put it this way, you and I are Jesus' investment in this world to work for Christ our King, to make the gospel known, to lead others to follow Christ. And that includes every part of you, your job, your marriage, your kids, everything that is you, everything that is me. And so when he uses this word of investing, right, that's what these guys did, those who were faithful, the picture is we are called to maximize the work of the gospel in our lives in Christ's world, joyfully for Christ the King. 
Right? So Jesus is invested in you as a Christian. Now joyfully invest in the kingdom. Some of us, he gives more talents than others. Some of us have more money. Some of us have uh, a greater aptitude for reading and teaching. Some of us have... Some of us are just better at hospitality. Some of us have all kinds of different gifts, right? Some of us can go to work and make relationships that your pastor cannot make. That's all of us. And the whole idea is Jesus has invested in you so that we might invest in his kingdom. So, how are you doing? Christ in his kingdom, he saves you by grace. He's in He's, he's invested in you with his blood. And now everyone now in Christ by faith is a servant in his kingdom to use everything he has given us to serve him and love our neighbor. Right? And so the picture of this parable is that he doesn't save us by grace to invest in our own little kingdoms. It's to have this big, grand, ultimate purpose in life, and that's to make Christ known, to serve him. The church is here to equip you to, to, to do go those good works. That's why we gather each week. We need to believe the gospel and, and be, be sent. That's why we end every service with a benediction and ascending. Right? Because I know that you have a different personality than me. You have different gifts than me. Uh, you have different relationships than me. You can talk to people who will trust you when you talk about Jesus, and they, don't have a, they won't give a rip if I start talking to them because there's no context that's all part of your talents. But the idea is, what are you doing with what Christ has given you? Are you joyfully investing your talents for King Christ's kingdom? And I know this puts some pressure on. Even more so when you see the, all three of these parables are parables of judgment when Jesus returns and he says, what did you do with what I gave you? That, and, and especially in the parable of the talents, we're told this is an individual job review. You can't hide behind someone else's good works. The guy who had five talents, what did you do? Here's five. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The one with two talents, what have you done? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You can't rely on anyone else's work but, but Christ and what you've done with what he's invested because look at the judgment. What really, this is what I want to focus on, because I know this puts a lot of pressure on us, and you have to be able to hear what Jesus means. What is the judgment for the guy who was given talents and did nothing with them? Why did he not work for Christ? What was his problem? And the answer is, well, you listen to him, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid, so I hid, my, hid your talent in the ground. This guy didn't know anything about the kindness of Jesus or the work of Jesus. He did what we do with the parable of judgment. He says, I don't want to serve a God who scares us. I would never want to serve a God who judges. I would never want to serve a God who sends people to hell. I would never want a God who doesn't seem to care about my happiness. And what Jesus says, the reason he's judged because he never knew me. He doesn't know the kindness of me. He doesn't know the graciousness of my work. Right? 
The main reason the wicked servant abused grace and did nothing with the gospel is because he was afraid of judgment. He thought God was a Scrooge. And when you know what a talent is, you realize he's not a Scrooge. He's incredibly generous. And he totally misunderstood the work of the gospel. When has God ever demanded without first giving? He's, He's always blessed you and then says, now obey me. I mean, look at how kind Jesus is. He says, even if you had gone down to the local bank, go to Trusco, and just put it in an account, get .001 interest, I'd be happy. But you did nothing. You heard grace, and it had no effect. You just wanted the benefits. You didn't understand who Christ really is and his work. And the point is, Jesus is not a harsh taskmaster. He's a kind Lord and King, a King who says, work for me with crucified hands. Do you know what kind of master Jesus is? Personally, this is what's going to motivate you, and this is how we're going to end. Because you can't avoid judgment, and this is how you have to end. Every single one of these parables is about judgment. And it's aimed at those in the church trying to weed out those who professed faith but who have not actually stepped into the kingdom, who are hiding. They've confessed Jesus with their mouths, but their lives show that they are primarily concerned about the world. And so, friends, what is God, what is Christ's investment in you? You know what Jesus does? He's not only able, <laughs> I'll put it this way, Jesus comes into the world as the faithful servant, investing everything that God had given him. But what, what Jesus also does is he invests everything we bring to the table. Jesus is able to invest even your sin to turn it to good. Because what Jesus does is he comes, he lives the life we should have lived, and he takes the judgment we deserve just for being concerned more about us than God. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus did this. He was a joyful servant, even as he suffered. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross, he endured hell, he endured God the judge, saying to him, I never knew you. He went through hell so that God could come to you and I at the end of all things and give you the commendation before you ever get started. (laughs) That's really what the cross is. It's the final review, launching you into service of the king. Because in every corner of your life, you know what we have to do? We have to work to get that good job. You have to study to get the test, to get the A, to get the celebration. You have to work really hard. You have to not screw up to get the, the, the raise, right? In every aspect of your life, you have to earn and slave away to get approval. And what God does is send his son to die for us while we were enemies, to give us the approval, and then says, now serve me. You are my investment, with whom I am well pleased. And he gives you grace to obey. And so, friends, this is what motivates us to do ministry. Christ's joyful investment in you to include you. And what, a, what an honor. All right, so you got two questions. Are you ready for judgment? Have you prepared for this? Have you 
come to the foot of the cross and seeing what God has invested in you to motivate you to obey? Or will you be caught by surprise? And then second, do you live like you're God's joyful investment in the world? Because this, this, this is the new overarching principle to motivate your life, to evaluate your life, to structure your life, is, is to ask this question, what will maximize the work of the gospel in every nook and cranny of my life for Christ? Right? You want to know who you should date? Well, will the person you date and eventually marry, will they help make Christ known? You want to know where to live? What will maximize the work of the gospel? Maybe we'll live in a smaller home so we can free up time and money. Or maybe we'll live in a bigger home so we can have hospitality. But either way, you know, what do you, you got to ask, what will maximize the work of the gospel in our lives? Where should I work? What kind of job should I pursue? How will it affect the pursuit of the gospel? Will it, will it enhance it or take away? Your kids are part of the work of the gospel. Right. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And you know what I picture the end to be like? When you get there, We've already been set free from God's judgment, but Jesus is going to call you forward, and we bring our talents to him. And when he says, well done, thy good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You know what I picture that being? I see it like when I, when I play games with my kids. Right? We, we've brought them into the world. We've given them gifts. We play Candyland, and I do everything I can to ensure their victory. And then I celebrate for them and with them. That's why we sang. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to look at the crown. I'm not going to look at the honor Christ gives. I'm going to look at my Savior's face and the pierced hands that made this praise possible. And so go and learn what that means as you work faithfully to invest the gospel in this world. Let's pray. Father, this is a big overview, but I pray that um, you would just convict and convince us more deeply that we have been bought and paid for. We are your beloved by grace. And I pray for us as Hope Church, you would teach us and show us how we can invest our talents, our gifts, our time to make Christ known. So I pray you would teach us to serve as we have been served and that Hope Church would be a known would be known as a place that equips people for service in Christ's kingdom. Sent by grace, working for your joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.